Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. You know, Easter has such deep, profound significance for all of us, and uh, it's something that we celebrate. Uh, it's like a Christian high-key event, if you will. And so it is something that we really uh, celebrate uh, once a year, and uh, it's such a special time. And, uh, but Easter gets me really reflective. And I think about all the miracles that Christ has done in my life. I think about how uh, He's guided me, led me, comforted me, uh, been my Lord, been my Savior. You know, I think uh, you know, most of y'all would know me, or a good chunk of y'all would know me, but it's a miracle that I'm a pastor. Well, one. Ooh. Shakaraba. We good? Okay, very good. The temple will be destroyed in three days. <laughs> um, but it's a miracle I'm a pastor. Well, one, because of my, you know, mouse break personality type, it basically means that I just don't like people. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And, um, but, you know, I, I grew up being a real rascal. Might not look like it, but I grew up being a real rascal. And uh, when I was younger, you know, I used to fail uh, my Chinese all the time, you know. I grew up Pranakan, and so it's in my heritage, and it's in my genetic code to not do well in Mandarin. And so uh, my siblings had all a test. Um, my sister, you know, once uh, when she was taking her exams, my dad looked at her and said, if you score an A, I'll buy you a dinosaur. Because, you know, it was so far-fetched for anyone with a surname Tan in our family to score an A. Chinese is like, out of all this world. And then she really buckled down, and she got an A. And so my dad was like, no dinosaur. So he bought her a dog instead. And so, and uh, the dog is still around. <laughs> it's a true story, you know. Um, but we all feel our Mandarin. It's, it's, it's something that we don't get scolded for. Parents got scolded, yeah. You know, but, um, you know, when, when you don't do well in assignments, you kind of get that, uh, your teacher will be like, hey, you know, you need to tell your parents. And so they'll put the parent's signature chop. And so uh, I had like a bunch of them on my textbook. And, you know, I decided like, you know what? I'm just going to spare my parents the trouble of needing to sign it. And I'll just do it for them, you know, being the considerate son that I am. And so I, I signed the first one. And, you know, it's kind of a thing where, you know, if you sign one, you can't bring it to your parents again because, you know, if they flip, they go, hey, that's not my signature. And so, you know, I spared them the trouble for the whole year. And so for the whole year, every single Chinese assessment I had, ting xie la, zao ji, everything, right, I signed it for my parents. And so at the, the end of the year comes and, uh, you know, I was like, I'm finally free from this, uh, bondage, you know, I'm firmly free from this need to sign, you know, like, hey, clean slate, going to go New Year, New Year, New Me. And so I, I took the books and I chucked it into the dustbin on my way home. And, you know, when I got back home after a shower, I went out, and on my dining table was all my books laid out perfectly. I still think to this day that my dad works for, like, some government agency because, like, no one was there. How do they know the books got thrown in there? And so they took it out and laid out on the table was all my books with the pages open to the, the parents' signature chop. And my parents look at me and it's like, and my parents, you know, they, they have never hit me. They have never hit me. They are, they are more of like the, you know, reason and like, you know, play mind games kind. You know? And <laughs> I, I'll explain in a bit. And so my, my parents looked at me and it's like, so why do you do this? And I was like, I was scared. Why were you scared? Uh, I was scared you scold me. Why were you scared you, know, you scold me? And then they just keep asking why, 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 why. And then you come to a place where you just can't answer anymore. Then you just keep quiet. And my dad would go, what? <laughs> so I was like, ah. <laughs> and my parents have this tactic, okay? They never 
punish us. They make us pick our own punishment, which is all sorts of mind games there. And so my, my parents look at me and was like, we don't know what to do with you anymore. What will you have us do? And I looked at them and I said, I think you should send me to boys' home. <laughs> Backstory, my mom has been donating the boys' home for the last like 10 years. And so every month we get a letter from boys' home. And my mother will go, look, look, uh, I know the guys in boys' home, okay? If you mess up, uh, you're going to go there. And so my parents, you know, they profess, like, I, we've come to a wit's end. We don't know what to do with you anymore. What will you have us do? And I was like, I think I need to go to boys' home. So my dad you know, and my mom, they held it in. They were like, okay, pack your bags. And I went, I went to my room. I packed my bags. I packed, I packed all a bunch of stuff. You know, and I packed my bag. I was ready to go. And, and my dad grabbed me and was like, say goodbye to your mother and your sister. And so I was like, I was like bye-bye. And then young little Deisha didn't know anything. She was just, bye-bye. You know, and so off I went. You know, and it was a long drive from Bedok all the way to Boys Home. I still remember it's next to Assumption English School. And so I drove all the way there, and it was quiet. And then my dad parked the car outside. He's like, all right, now you're going to say your last goodbyes. And then he hands me the phone, and my mother was on the other line. My mother says, okay, this is what you want to do. Say goodbye. I was like, okay, goodbye. And then, uh, and then she hands the phone to my sister. And by then, my sister was crying. She's like, Coco, please don't go, you know, like little sisters would, but she doesn't these days, you know, because... Transitions and stuff. <laughs> I used to be her all. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, and so, um, and so long story short, you know, I break down the car. I was like, please, I don't go boys home. And then, you know, uh, and then I left. I was, uh, oh, by the way, I was 11 years old then. So I was a young boy. And I only found out that it was all a ruse, that there was no way they could check me into boys home when I was 15. <laughs> and so I'm a scholar to begin with. And so... And so why I bring this story up, okay, I made a mistake, okay, and, you know, I felt guilty, I felt bad about it, I felt bad for grieving my parents, and I wanted to atone for the mistake, and the only way I knew how, the best way I could atone for the mistake was, I go boys home, right, and, you know, this is the, the thing with life and being in relationship with people, being on planet Earth, we all make mistakes, do we agree on that, yes, we all make mistakes, and many times when we make mistakes, we would like to atone for these mistakes, yeah, you know, when I quarrel Amy, there's a formula, okay? When Andre does something bad, go back, go out, buy a box of Ferrero Rocher, tap on matcha, Hagen dazs ice cream, and whew, we are in the clear. We're in the clear. For the most part, not to make you sound like you eat a lot, but she, <laughs> you love chocolate. See her figure, so miao She doesn't eat a lot. But, you know, she likes her chocolates, and so I like to buy her chocolates, and that's the way I atone for it, you know. The way Amy atoned for a mistake is like she was like, damn, like, mm, don't like that, don't like that. And I'm like, ooh, okay. We're all good. <laughs> None of y'all should try that because it wouldn't work. I just tell you upfront. Only it works for Amy. <laughs> huh? <laughs> you want to try it? <laughs> but we all make mistakes and naturally we like to atone for them, right? But we all know that we make some mistakes in life that no one would ever know about, right? We make some mistakes. We do some things in life that we wouldn't even dare tell the person on our left, on our right. We wouldn't dare speak of it to any single person. We wouldn't even dare talk about it, much less atone for it. We all know there are things that we've done in life that there's no way we can atone for it. And so what do we do with stuff like that? More often than not, we just live with that guilt like a phantom pain. We live with that guilt, we shove it down deep inside, we medicate it through vices, through distraction, and we live our lives that way. We shove it down deep. But we all know that this guilt, that phantom pain, surfaces every now and then. It affects our relationship, it affects our lives. 
what do we do? Do we live with guilt, perpetual guilt for the rest of our lives? Or is there another way? The good news for us as Christians, as believers, is that Jesus on the cross took our shame, took our guilt. He paid the price. He atoned for the mistakes that you made. And that's the good news of the gospel, that he atoned for your mistakes and mine, for our sins. And that work was sealed in what we refer to as the resurrection. And this is what we're celebrating this morning, the resurrection of our Lord, the defeat of death and all his friends, sin, guilt, and shame. They're gone in Jesus' name. That's also a song. But let's look at a passage of scripture, shall we? This is church after all. We believe in the Bible, and the Bible makes sermons legal. Matthew chapter 28. I have this graphic, but I don't know whether you'll get it, so let's just move on, okay? You know, it's a, it's a stone, the tomb. Whoa! Whoa! People go, MasterCard, MasterCard. Okay, next. Matthew 28. Okay, shall we read this? Okay? goes like this. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And that last line, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you for the rousing applause. I'm so overwhelmed by your enthusiasm. But let's go on. Well, sarcasm is a love language, just in case you go on. In 2005, David Foster Wallace addressed the graduating class at a college with a speech that is now one of his most read pieces. He begins with a parable. And the parable is this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and said, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and goes, What the hell is water? (laughs) Wallace elaborated on this water parable. The point of fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see, least talk about, and appreciated. Such is the case with the death and resurrection of Christ. Though it is without a shadow of doubt what our entire faith hangs upon, we have grown accustomed to the idea of divine love. That we don't often talk about it. It's by far the most important reality for the believer. And I'll even suggest for all of humanity. But it's something that, that we bring up once a year to commemorate, to celebrate. But I'd like to suggest to you that this reality of Christ's resurrection affects the way you live life today. It affects the entire planet. The resurrection of Christ. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Our faith, our preaching, all that we do here is useless if Christ had not been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is far more than just an event we commemorate, though that moment in time was no doubt glorious and worthy of all. But I'd like to suggest to you that the resurrection of Christ, Him being raised from the dead, it affects you in a very real and personal way in the world we live in today. Today I'd like to speak to you on the subject 
of hope in a Good Friday world. Hope in a Good Friday world. He has risen. Thank you, baby. They all never listen to me, but only you. Who was Jesus? That's the title of the August 1988 issue of Time magazine. That was the, 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 the cover page. Who was Jesus? And that's the question our society keeps coming back to again and again and again. Who was Jesus? From the Crusades to the Spanish Inquisition to the sex scandal that's playing the Catholic Church to concentration camps in Auschwitz to the terror attack in Christchurch, the question comes up again and again. Who was or who is Jesus? Even in an urban, fast-paced, educated city like Singapore, we can't get away from that question. That question comes up maybe in a different form. Who is Jesus? Or is Jesus really God? Now, there were many theories. Some say that Jesus was just like a political revolutionary, just a crazy person, kind of like a Che Guevara, but except with a Bible. Or some say he was a god, but in the avatar of a human body, you know, like controlling avatar of a human body. But more commonly believed, Jesus was just a good teacher and no more. Kind of like a first century equivalent of a self-help hippie kind of guru. Think of Jesus like, you know, a Jordan Peterson kind of guy or Oprah kind of guy. If you were a first century Jew and you were in synagogue and Jesus shows up to teach that day, chances are you would recognize him or you would call him teacher. But the main problem with that idea was Jesus, as that, the main problem with the idea that Jesus was only a teacher was what Jesus thought. Jesus didn't just thought ethical values. He didn't just thought about how to do life well. Most of his teachings were centered around this concept, this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Jesus in his teachings would say to all who are listening that he was the king of this kingdom, that he was the Messiah, the savior of humanity. At the top of the list, Jesus' central main teaching was the kingdom of God. He spoke of himself as the Messiah, as the coming king. Now picture this, okay? You are a first century Jew, okay? Can you picture that? I am a first century Jew. Say that, I am a first century Jew. Okay, you are a first century Jew, okay? You're an ardent, passionate, monotheist. You believe in one God. There's only one God. You have lived in multiple cultures by now but you live in a Greek Roman society full of deities, full of demigods, different gods, and you go, that is all not true. There's only one God, Yahweh. He's the God of Moses, Elijah, David, Abraham. He is my God, Yahweh, only one God. You are a monotheist, passionate, ardent follower of Yahweh. Fast forward further down the Gospels, Jesus, at some point, was now regarded as Messiah, as the Lord. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And that statement so galvanized the early followers that even whilst they were being killed in Roman Colosseums, while they were being torn apart by animals, they would shout, Jesus is Lord. Think about that. The disciples, missionaries of old, even today, will give their lives in some of the most terrible ways, live in some of the most horrific circumstances, and all that because of this simple profession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And my suggestion to you is that you don't get thought into a radical lifestyle. There must be some kind of experience. We just witnessed the death of 10 individuals giving their lives to Jesus in a public declaration of their faith, commitment, and surrender. And I don't think you get thought 
or coerce into that. There must be some kind of experience. There must be some kind of conviction that is divine, that is out of this world, that will lead to 10 individuals giving their lives to Jesus in that way, to missionaries giving their lives in some of the most horrific circumstances. Jesus is Lord. And the word used there for Lord is the Greek word karios. And karios is the translation of the Hebrew proper name of God, Yahweh. And so when you say Jesus is Lord in that day, you are literally saying that Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh, that Jesus is the creator stepping into creation, that in Jesus, divinity and humanity meet. Jesus is Lord. I thought that was good. Good job, Andre. C.S. Lewis, right out of Chronicles of Narnia, he has this great, great uh, paragraph. He says this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. One of two. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this is commonly referred to as the Lewis trilemma. Jesus was either a lunatic, he was either a liar, or he is truly Lord. We can't just stop at him just being a good person just being a simple moral teacher that once lived, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he is truly your Lord, your Lord, Yahweh in the flesh. Now you might be wondering, how do we get to this point, right? Seeing Jesus as God, seeing him as Yahweh, seeing him as the living embodiment of creator God. You might be wondering, how do we get to this point? Are these people nuts? Are these people crazy? How did we come to this point? Where do they get all this from? from a Jewish guy who had a cool beard, who lived some 2,000 years ago, how was he Lord? How did he get to the point of being worshipped as God? I can go with a long answer, but short answer, it's Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is why we call him Lord and why he is Yahweh. We believe that Jesus was nailed and died on the cross on Friday, was buried in a tomb on Sunday. The stone covering the entrance of the tomb, the tomb was rolled away. Jesus rose from the grave. The tomb is now empty. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord, the living embodiment of Yahweh because he came back from the dead. Now let's read the rest of Matthew chapter 28. Let's have that slide up. The next slide, it says this in the rest of Matthew chapter 28. The next slide says, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, what's up? They came to him. Just trying to contextualize it for you. Then the disciples came to him, clasped his feet. In some languages, it was suggested held to his feet tightly. They didn't let go and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Notice the turn of events. Jesus was dead at one point. The disciples were in anxiety. They were in panic. Then he rose from the grave. And all of a sudden, he is not just a good teacher. He is not just some man who lived once, 
but He is Lord, He is Yahweh, because He is risen from the dead. And within hours of His appearing, they worship Him. He is God in the flesh. Amen? At the center of all that we believe as followers of Jesus is the claim that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, not dead, that He is here, not far away, that He is now, not just in the past. That is the heart of the gospel. Now, all that is good, right? Easter Sunday, the resurrection, all that is good. But let me just put it to the current context that we live in, this world that we live in. It can be something that we just commemorate once a year, celebrate what happened 2,000 years ago, clap our hands, have a buffet. Maybe we have a bunny next year. I don't know. But we can celebrate it once a year and it can just be that. Or it can be a reality that impacts your very lives, the world in which we live in. It, in fact, is a reality that we need to constantly remind ourselves and live in even as we navigate the world in which we live in today. Because the truth is, the world that we all live in, this world, in this very moment, is a Good Friday world. We live in a Good Friday world. We know that Christ was crucified on that faithful Friday. He was mocked, beaten, scourged, and killed in a mockery of a trial. It was undoubtedly the darkest hour of human history. And in many ways today, the world we live in mirrors that darkness. It mirrors that darkness. A Good Friday world is full of suffering, questioning, unfairness, trouble, mistakes, hurts, losses, and grief. This last year, we've seen so much tragedy. Can we have the next slide up? So much has happened, you know, from the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar to school shootings that happen almost on a predictable level in the U.S. to Harvey Weinstein, the sex scandal, the Me Too movement coming up, to suicide rates in Singapore, that's a bit closer to home. There are 2.5 times more deaths from suicide than transport accidents in Singapore. Do you know that? 361 lives were lost to suicide in the last year and is one of the leading causes of death in millennials in Singapore. Another tragedy that... that, uh, uh, happened in the last week was the recent fire at Notre Dame, a historical site, place of worship, cathedral. Let's have that slide up. Horrific images of the cathedral being burned down, rubble, broken, and it's almost a poignant image as we commemorate Holy Week this week. We live in a world full of pain. And most of you know, in hearing my story, my sharing, know that 2018 was a particularly hard year for me. It was a year of struggle. Just a show of hands, how many of you had a really, really hard year in 2018? Just a show of hands, how many of you? A bunch of you had a hard year in 2018. And we know that we have hard years every now and then, that this life is one that we will face pain. No doubt joy, celebration, excitement, but with that comes pain, loss, hurt, and grief. Tim Keller writes this, you know, I have brought up this line many times, but it says this, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Thank you, Tim, for the encouragement. <laughs> no amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, die illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Life is tragic. 
Paul in Romans chapter 8 will say this about the life in which we live in. Let's have Romans chapter 8 up. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That word, present sufferings. For the creation wakes in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but ourselves, we have the first fruits of spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul, in that long passage of scripture, sums up this life that we live on earth in essentially three words. He says that this life will be one of suffering, it'll be one of frustration, it'll be one of groaning. And he likens that pain to childbirth. And many of us can relate to that, a life of suffering, frustration, and groaning. The groaning might sound like, when will things get better? When will this pain end? When will the school shootings end? When will the gap between rich and poor, the injustice that we see around us end? When will the kingdom come? We groan with the ache of unfulfilled desire. Or as one writer put it, this life is full of unfinished symphonies. Think about that. It's that feeling of when you listen to a song, ta, 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 and someone changes the song, and you didn't get to rock out. That feeling of anticipation, but leaving being unfulfilled, that feeling is the human condition, is the world in which we live in today. No matter how good you have it, how much you have, how high up you are on the social economic level, there is always a sense of unfinished, constant longing for a better life, for a better world. And I'd like to suggest to you today that though whatever I just said in the last five minutes sounds bleak, sounds dark, sounds hopeless, that in the resurrection of Christ, we have hope. In the resurrection of Christ, we find a hope that is not just a concept, it's not just theoretical, but it's a living hope. A living hope. Are you still with me? Coming to an end in the next 10 minutes. N.T. Wright, how can I preach about Easter with not, without an N.T. Wright quote? He says this, The resurrection declared that Jesus was not the ordinary sort of political king, a rebel leader that, you know, rebel leader is such a good term for me because Star Wars, that some had supposed. He was the leader of a far larger, more radical revolution than anyone had ever supposed. He was inaugurating a new world, a new creation, a new way of being human. He was forging a way into a new cosmos, a new era, a form of existence hinted at all along, but never before unveiled. Jesus, through the work of the resurrection, inaugurates a new kingdom, a new hope. Also Star Wars reference. <laughs> that there can be hope in this world that we live in. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, Paul says this, For this world, in its present form, is passing away. And what he means by that is not that the planet Earth that we live in is doomed to hell, just don't recycle and just let this whole planet blow up. He's not saying that. But the word form is the word schema. It is where we get the word schematic. And here's what he's essentially saying. He's saying that this world, as it is set up now, the injustices that we see, the oppression, the evil, this world and the way it is set up will come to an end. And there's coming a new kingdom. There is coming a new kingdom in which we place all our hope in. 
The truth is today we live in an overlap. Not the end of the world, but the end of a world and the beginning of a new one. There is a world that right now as we speak is going away, it's dying. But there's another world that is right now as we speak coming into being. And on Easter, we look, for, we look back, but we also look forward to a coming world, to a coming kingdom that far eclipses this world in its glory, in its splendor, in its wonder, in its all. And the Bible has language to describe this tension that we live in, this pain, this struggle. The Bible calls it birth pains, or the groans of childbirth. But here's the thing. You can only be pregnant for so long. There's a time limit. Hallelujah. I wouldn't know, but so, you know. You can only be pregnant for so long. Which says to us that you can only groan for so long. You can only mourn for so long. That at some point, the groaning ceases because birth is coming. New life is coming. For the Christian, this is our hope. We groan not in the pain of our past, but in hope for our future. We put our hope, the weight of our life, we set the aim of our future on the return of Jesus to make all things new. We can groan in hope. You know, in most churches, they have the Easter bunny and the eggs, and I don't even know where they get that from, from the resurrection story. How many of you have seen a bunny in the story of eggs? None, right? But let's, let's just roll with this whole eggs analogy. Easter Sunday, resurrection, is the day you can be assured that you can put all your eggs in one basket. All your eggs, entire weight of your life, your hopes, your wishes, your dreams, all of it placed in one basket. The resurrection, hope of a new kingdom, hope of a new life, that this world Dark and bleak as it may be, it's not permanent. It's passing away. And there's coming a new kingdom where there's no weeping, no mourning. Joy, everlasting joy. The hope of a coming kingdom. The resurrection says that we can have hope in a Good Friday world. We can have hope in a Good Friday world. Even in death, we can have hope. You know, I think about uh, a friend of mine, his name is Joshua, and uh, he uh, had a really troubled relationship with his father. His father was going through a bunch of stuff and um, would, you know, just not be a great dad to him when he was younger. And uh, the dad actually wrote, wrote a book about it. Uh, it's called Experiencing the Father's Embrace, Jack Frost. And um, his son, Joshua, uh, would grow up in pain, but, you know, as his father got healed up, as their relationship got restored, uh, Jack would go on and, and begin a... a a really fruitful ministry. But, you know, uh, tragically, you know, as uh, Jack, his father, was getting better, was getting healed up, uh, he began to be stricken with cancer, and uh, he had lung cancer, and when they found out it was stage four, and uh, he died really shortly after. And Joshua was uh, on the flight back uh, to home to visit his dad, and his dad passed on tragically before he got back home. And uh, Joshua, you know, of course, bore all that grief, all that pain of you know, not having the relationship with his dad like he wanted to, and not being able to see his dad for the last time. He bore that, all that pain, all that grief, that sense of hopelessness, that sense of pain. And uh, he was in a funeral service one day, and he was walking around and was preparing for his eulogy, and the Lord began to speak to him. And God spoke to him and said, Joshua, there's someone that's going to come later on. She's going to sit in the front row, and she has stage 4 cancer, and I'd like you to pray for her. 
Now get this, Jack, Joshua's dad, died of stage four cancer. And now he was asked to pray for a lady who has stage four cancer. And so he stood up, he struggled a ton. And the Lord said to him, you know, in, in a real simple, gentle way, trust me. And so, you know, he goes up, gives his eulogy, struggled with the idea for a bunch. And eventually he saw that, that lady sitting in the front, frail, and walks up to her and prays for her. And the next thing you know, she goes back to the doctor, leaves with a clean bill of health. She was cancer-free. She was cancer-free. Painful. Death. Grieving. Loss. Hurt. Disappointment. But I'd like to suggest to you that the Easter story is, is simply this, that even in death, there can be hope of new life. Even in death, there can be hope of resurrection. Even in the worst of circumstance, death itself, Grieving, loss, hurt, pain, disappointment. There can be new life, hope, healing, restoration, birth out of it. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of the resurrection that we've been talking about. In death and in pain, there can still be hope and healing. For every good Friday, there's resurrection on the other side. For every good Friday, there's resurrection on the other side. I'll say that again one more time. For every good Friday, there's resurrection on the other side. We can be Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We can be Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Now the resurrection. This thing that we talk about, um, for Christian, it's become a matter of fact. It's become something that we just go, yeah, you know, it makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's something that actually happened. But for the most part, for a good chunk of the world, the resurrection is absolutely nonsensical. It's childish make-believe. While there's tremendous historical evidence supporting the authenticity of the resurrection claims, there are popular theories that people hold on to that will explain away the resurrection claims. Some of the theories go, Mary and the, the, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. That's a theory, you know, that they just you know, got blur and then went to the wrong tomb. It's like, ah, it's empty, he's risen! And, you know, that's where the stereotype that women are very bad in directions came from there. But it's false because... Sit in a car with me and Amy, you know that I have a horrible sense of direction and Amy has an amazing one. And so, bad people. Joy's direction, sense of direction also better than you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Another popular theory is that the disciples and Mary, because of grief, were in hysteria and they hallucinated the whole thing. Another popular theory was that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He was just badly wounded. And they put him in the tomb and he came out injured and got help. But you, you just think about the sheer absurdness of that. Jesus comes out mortally wounded and just limps out and they go, He's the Messiah, the risen Christ. Doesn't make sense. And then the last and the, my most fa- uh, favorite theory is that Jesus had a secret twin. <laughs> look it up. Look it up. There are like a bunch of articles on Jesus having a secret twin. The resurrection is, is disputed in, in many ways, but, you know, and I can go through all the historical evidence, I can try and convince you of a bunch of stuff, but here is why I believe in the resurrection. Here's why I believe in the resurrection. Because I've seen the power of God touch lives of people. I've seen the power of God touch lives of people close to me. I've seen the power of God touch the lives of people in our community. I think of Kelvin. I think of what God has done in his life. I think of the miracle power, miracle power of Jesus touching him. I think of Yeshante, Jay and Jen's miracle baby, a baby they've waited years to see. I think of the miracle power of God touching them. I think of the countless lives that have been transformed in this place. I think of all the miracles that we've seen. I think about the resurrection power of Christ that has touched my life, that transformed my life inside out. 
the proof of the resurrection is all around you. It's all around you. Jesus is risen and is touching lives today. I'd like to leave you with one last picture. Can I do that? And that's the picture of, of Notre Dame. And know oh, this picture has been circulating, it's popular. And it's amidst all the rubble, the destruction, the fire, the catastrophe, the tra- tragedy, the cross stands above it all, intact, unbroken, even in the midst of the rubble. And I'm not going like, to give you three prophetic signs on this and write in the whole article that I'm not going to do that. But it's such a poignant and impactful and powerful image. One person wrote that the cross in this picture is beauty, literally beauty, in the midst of ashes. That even through the most hellish of circumstances, the cross still stands. The cross in the midst of our ugly, our dark, our disgusting, still stands and it is beautiful. And the next point is this. You know, it's reported that over a billion dollars of funds have been poured into the restoration of this cathedral. That's pretty amazing, you know, and for some, pretty offensive. A billion dollars have been poured in to the restoration of this building. Think about that. But the image I would like to leave you, with you, even as we end the service, is this. They can put in a billion dollars. They can get the best structural engineers to come in. The ingenuity of men, the, the genius of men can be placed, can be poured into the restoration of this building. All of man's effort, all of man's intellect can be poured into this building. But the thing is this, no matter how much money is poured into, no matter how well it is built, it will crumble one day. It will crumble one day. The things of the earth will fade away. All that you have, all that you've built, it will one day turn to dust. But the cross of Jesus, Good Friday, Easter, the resurrection, what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross will be for all eternity. Will be for all eternity. It will stand the test of time. It will endure forever. And so the question I'll leave you with this. The eggs of your life, all your hopes, your wishes, your dreams, your ambitions, will you put it in a basket that is fading away? Your intellect, your skill sets, what you've accomplished in life, or will you put it in a basket that will remain, that will stand the test of time? Jesus is risen from the grave. He is Lord. He is Yahweh living in the flesh. And He invites all of us, you and me, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are right now, Jesus invites all of us to partake of this life eternal that will go on and on and on forever. This is our great hope. This is our hope. This is the hope of the resurrection, that we can have hope in the midst of a Good Friday world. In darkness, pain, trial, disappointment, we can have hope because He is risen. Amen? Can we stand? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. risen Come on. That's awesome. I have one last quote for you. Let's uh, look at the the screen. And this is my favorite quote of all time. This is my Easter quote from Bob Goff. He goes, darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost. 
but heaven just started counting to three. I think about this uh, quote often, you know, when me and my siblings, we get into a fight, and you know, it looks like I'm losing, my mom steps in and be like, hey, I count to three, huh? One, two, and you know, suddenly, peace. Suddenly, no more strife. How many of you relate to that? Yeah? In darkness, in pain, in disappointment, in your grief, in your trials, heaven is counting to three. Heaven fights for you. Heaven stands on your behalf. And no darkness can overtake you. No darkness can overcome you because even the chief of all darkness, death itself, has been trampled, defeated. The last enemy has fallen. Death has lost its sting. And no matter what you face in life today, there is hope of resurrection. Amen? Let's close our eyes for a moment and let's ponder on the beauty of what you just heard about. His resurrection. That Christ rose from the grave. And He came back as hope embodied.